Thank you for downloading this podcast of the Sunday Sermon. The Sunday Sermon podcast is a ministry of the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church located in Westerville, Ohio. And my name is Paul Ederling, and I am the pastor of the Westerville Church. And I would like to invite you to find out more about our church by visiting www.westervillechurch.org. And then also, if you would just take a moment uh, wherever you download your podcast to rate and and comment on our podcast that will help us to be more easily discovered um, in the podcast world. And now let's join the message. We have been studying over the last few weeks a series concerning the issues of the heart. In this series, we have been setting the foundation of doctrine and principles to get us to the practical. So if you're wondering when I'm going to get to the practical, it's coming. Um, We have looked at the significance and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. We believe that the Scriptures has everything in them pertaining to life and godliness that we need. And so we are to be a people of the Scriptures and believe that they are sufficient for every issue of the heart, for every circumstance that we face in this life. We've also looked at the sufficiency of the Gospel. The Gospel is revealed to us through the Scriptures, and that's why we started with the Scriptures and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. But the Gospel itself is sufficient. And the reason the gospel is sufficient is because when a person repents of their sin, places their faith in Christ, has that born-again experience in which the Holy Spirit comes into him and lives in him and makes him a part of the body of Christ, when that happens, the gospel is sufficient because it transforms you. You are not the same person after you come to Christ, as you were before you came to Christ. There is a transformation that takes place. And of course, part of the gospel is not just that you've been forgiven of your sin. The gospel in and of itself is not just that you've been saved and on your way to heaven. But there's a second aspect to the gospel, and that is that you've been set apart, you've been sanctified. In that transformation of the new birth, you've become a part of the body of Christ, you've become a part of the church, and you are sanctified and set apart from the world, and that sanctification is both a work of God in you, but it also requires some effort on our part. All throughout the Scripture, we find that we are to give ourselves to the spiritual disciplines. We're to give ourselves repeatedly, submitting ourselves to the Lord in obedience to Him. But the important thing that I want you to hear and see today about that is that you cannot do it alone. Now, while the gospel in your sanctification is important, and while God works in you, you also have responsibility and God, in his wisdom, has given you a church to be a part of. 
Because you cannot live the Christian life by yourself. Now, I know that's a message that may not be popular today. It's one that may cause some to turn away and do their own thing, and I'll address that more in just a moment as we work through this passage. But the important key point that I want you to know today is that growth in Christ-likeness happens in the context of the local church. In Acts chapter 2, we have before us a passage of Scripture that I think lays out for us some characteristics of the early church. Now, just, as a, just to set the foundation and the context this morning, let me remind you that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It is a transitional book from the time of Christ into the birth and development of the New Testament church. And so we must be very careful when looking at the book of Acts that we do not draw our doctrine specifically from the book of Acts by itself. Anything that we see in the book of Acts must be drawn upon throughout the rest of Scripture to show us that this is indeed what was happening in the book of Acts. We have to take it within that context. And so... I said that to say this, what we're going to read this morning is a historical record of what the early church was doing. But as I will try to show you today in this message, when taken in context of the rest of Scripture, you will find that what they were doing in the early church in this passage still should be done today in the church. They are are foundational to what the church is and what the church does. Let's begin reading in verse 42, and we'll read through verse 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord to us. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, thank you for the blessing of your word incarnate, your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the blessing of your word in written form that we may come to know your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. We believe in the sufficiency of the Gospel. And we take seriously our responsibility to grow in Christlikeness and in holiness. 
So, Father, would you help us today to see in this passage the truth of the necessity of the community of the church and how that community helps us and encourages us and edifies us, builds us up. Lord, we love you. We ask you to soften our hearts now. We ask you to open our minds and hearts to your word and help us, Lord, to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. In verse 1, or in verse 42, excuse me, you will find that Luke records for us some things, a list of four things that these early believers were devoting themselves to. I want to call your attention, though, to one specific word before I move through the rest of this passage, and that is the word fellowship in verse 42. I want to submit to you from the very beginning of this message that everything recorded for us in verses 42 through 47 and everything that we know about the church from the New Testament as a whole is centered upon this one word, fellowship. And we'll talk more about it in just a moment in depth as we come to it in the passage, but, but by way of introduction, I just want to remind you that what we see in this passage is an expression of fellowship taking place by the church as a community of believers. And so every activity listed for us in verse 42, at the center of that really is this idea of fellowship. There's a second word in verse 42 that I want to draw your attention to, and that is the word devoted. Devoted. That word devoted means that there is a strong persistence, a strong perseverance. It's to be strong toward someone or something. It is to be devoted. And in the context of verse 42 and 43, what you find, specifically verse 42, what you find is this word devoted is applied to this list of four characteristics of the early church. In other words, they were strong towards these four things. They were persistent in these four things. They persevered in these four things. As a matter of fact, I would go to the extent of saying to you that this devotion was not a half-hearted devotion. This devotion that they had was not merely attending, but it was participating it was an active involvement. This devotion that is spoken of in Acts 2.42 required time, energy, and effort. Those who, those who placed this week at the National, as we just recognized them, there was some devotion to the competition activity. There was some devotion, some time, energy, and effort that they gave to those activities so that they could go to the National and accomplish what they accomplished. It's that same idea 
that Luke records for us here about the early church. And so I want you this morning as we think about that to think about these four things. Number one, we find the importance, excuse me, that's the wrong slide, the importance of instruction. They were devoted to instruction. Notice in verse 42 again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, to put this in context, all they had at this point was the Old Testament, the books of the law, the prophets, and the apostles, and the apostles' teaching. The apostles were teaching them about Christ. Now, to put it into immediate context, if you look at the rest of chapter 2, what you find is that this is the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and filled the church, birthed the church, And on that day, there was a man by the name of Peter, who was one of the apostles of Christ, who stood boldly and explained the gospel to them. And on that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. And with that in mind, we now see Luke saying to us about these people, this group of people who were now followers of Christ, they devoted themselves to the apostles' Teaching. So what was the apostles' teaching? Well, again, I think Peter's sermon is a great model to see that they were teaching and preaching Christ. They were preaching the gospel. And lives were being transformed. People were coming to faith in Christ, so much so that those 3,000 came, and what you have in verse 42, I think, is the establishment of the first local church in Jerusalem. Luke now describes to us what these new believers are doing together. So that teaching was probably more than just the gospel and Christ. It was taking what they knew from the Old Testament and the prophets the law, and showing how Christ fulfilled them. But not just how Christ fulfilled them, but probably showing them how that changes our lives and how we're to live. I suspect that in this apostle's teaching, there was probably ethical teaching. We're living in a day where ethics seems to have gone by the wayside, Perhaps they were practically teaching them, helping them understand who they are in Christ and how they now live that out in their lives. There was probably some practical teaching involved in this. But in all of that, this apostle's teaching was grounded in the central promise of God in Jesus Christ. And so... What does that mean to us? That means we should be excited that God has blessed us with a local church 
that is concerned with rightly proclaiming and practicing the truth of God's Word. Matter of fact, I would say to you, you can never take in too much preaching or teaching of the truth of God's Word. It is the local church that helps you ensure that you are keeping your doctrine straight, that you're adhering to the truth of God's Word, and that you're applying it correctly. It is the local church that if they're doing their job correctly, administers church discipline when necessary to bring you in line with the truth of God's Word. And so the question I would ask is, your attitude toward our times of gathering, is your attitude one that says, it's just another Bible study? It's just the same old, same old? We should be excited that God has given us a local church that is concerned with rightly preaching and practicing His truth. We live in a day in which entertainment has captured our attention. And whether we like to admit it or not, oftentimes we choose the church we want to attend based upon the entertainment value. God help us. If we can't come solely because there's a time of preaching and teaching that's going to take place, then we don't need to be here. These men, these women who were coming to Christ on that day, responding to the gospel, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the church, to the apostles' teaching. I suspect that one of the reasons we don't get excited about the preaching and teaching of the church is not just for the entertainment value or lack of, but we have approached, at least here in the Western culture, we've approached Bible study more like an academic exercise than a life-changing experience. We check off our devotions every day just so we check them off. We come to, to church once a week just so we can check it off and say we've been there. And, and it becomes more of an academic exercise going through the Word of God than it is a life-changing experience. Are we excited that God has given us a local church with His Word at the center of it and that we strive to rightly proclaim and practice the truth of God's Word. That ought to be the driving factor more than anything in this church. The second thing you'll notice is that these, these new believers understood the importance of fellowship. Now again, I think fellowship underlies all four things that are here, but since Luke calls it out directly and, and specifically, I am too, and what we find here is that the importance of fellowship is much more than just superficial. 
See, oftentimes, when we think about fellowship, what's, what's the first thing that, th- that we think about? Probably in relation to the church property, the first thing we think about is the fellowship hall. And certainly there is a place and there is significance in having a place where we can gather for what we call fellowship. But many times, if we're not careful, that fellowship becomes so superficial. When in reality, fellowship is spiritual. Fellowship is spiritual. I want you to think about this. The word fellowship itself, the the word koinonia in Greek means to share in common. So at its very basis, the fellowship that you and I have as a church and as a member of a church, as a, a part of a church, the very basic thing that we have in common is Christ himself. You cannot legitimately be a part of a church without Christ, without placing your faith in him and experiencing that new birth. It is that that puts you into the church. It is that that you have in common with others. It is that that sets the church apart from the rest of the world. We're not just another social gathering. We're not just a country club. We are the church. And there's something very different about the church because at its very root, what we have in common is Christ himself. But when we rightly understand fellowship and this fellowship that they were having, we understand that it points us to personal, interactive character of the relationships in the church at all levels. There was relationships and shared activities. The church was participating in all four of these activities listed for us. There was relationship and material support, as you see in verse 44. You find that there there were those who were concerned about others, and so they sold what they had. They sacrificed what they had to give to others who were in need. And so there is not just this material level of fellowship, but there's also this relational level in which they worship together and engage in spiritual activity together. The idea of fellowship from the New Testament is that there's a real sense of connection to, between, and for each other. The greatest strategy in the church today is that we have a group of believers coming together who feel disconnected. Because fellowship at its heart is a real sense of connection to, between, and for each other. Now, I mentioned that the greatest tragedy is that a group of believers would come together and still feel disconnected. Let me give you two threats that I see today to Christian fellowship. I would even go to the extent of saying this first one is the greatest threat to Christian fellowship. And that is the private, personal world we have built for ourselves. Now think about this. Used to, and I'm going to go back, I know I'm going to date myself here, but I'm going back 30 
years ago, maybe 35, on a Sunday afternoon with nothing to do, before we'd leave church, one of the guys would say, let's go play softball today, or let's go play basketball today, or let's go play golf today. And on Sunday afternoon, with nothing else to do, what did we do? We turned to each other in the church and we said, let's go. And we would go spend the afternoon with each other, playing ball together, giving our time to one another. You know why we did that? Because in those days, we didn't have this. This is the greatest threat to Christian fellowship. Look, I'm under no illusions this morning. I know that as I stand here preaching this morning, I am competing with your personal list of podcasts that you've subscribed to for the preachers who are better than I that you'd rather listen to. I know that I am competing with your list of podcasts that you subscribe to that have all this encouragement for you, that give you opinions and advice on how to live life, and none of it is based on the Word of God. It's people like Oprah. It's people like Ellen. It's people like Dr. Phil. It's people like whoever you want to name. They are out there, and they are grabbing our attention, and as a result, we're creating this own personal private world for ourselves in which we're listening to their voices rather than listening to the voice of the church God has given us. Amen. Even our music team is in competition with you because you have your personal playlist that you listen to 24 hours a day because you've created a private, personal world for yourself. And of course, it's not just podcasts and playlists, it's YouTube. You know, used to on a Friday night when we had nothing to do, we'd call each other and say, hey, let's go watch the movie on the big screen tonight. Now we don't even do that. We just pick up the small screen and we just sit at home and watch it. We've created a personal, private world for ourselves that is hindering. It is the greatest threat to Christian fellowship. Matter of fact, I would say to you that some people are so connected to their phones and their devices that they can't even be in public without ear pods in and listening to something. You can't sit at the dinner table without family watching and listening something on their devices. A time when we should be coming together as a family, we're so disconnected. Matter of fact, for many of us who are so attached to our private world that we've created with our phones, it would cause us a moment of anxiety if we had to separate from them. The fellowship of the church has never been in greater danger than today. There's another danger that is a threat to Christian fellowship, and it's this idea, and it may be expressed in different ways. This is how I'm going to express it. You might hear someone say, I like Jesus. I just don't care for the church. 
That is a mindset that is a threat to Christian fellowship. And here's why. That would be like me saying to my best friend, I really like you, but I could care less about your wife. Now, here's the problem with this idea. The New Testament presents the church as the bride of Christ. And so on one hand, you as an individual would say, I like Christ, I just don't like his church. Well, I've got news for you. If you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of the church, you're part of his bride, and his bride is bigger than you. And so it is illegitimate to say, I like Christ, but I don't like the church. Paul Keener is going to think that I'm plagiarizing him today, but this was already in my notes before he said it in Sunday school. But the picture of the church is never a person being an island to himself. It is always a community of followers of Jesus Christ living out their faith together. And here we have a picture of the early church devoted Time, energy, sacrifice being given to the fellowship of the church. So what does, what does the rest of the Bible say about fellowship? Obviously, I've already said to you, you have to interpret the book of Acts in light of the rest of Scripture. So, so what does the Bible say about fellowship? Well, let me just remind you of a few things here. Paul, writing to the Philippians in verse 5 of chapter 1 speaks to the Philippians about their partnership in the gospel. That's the word koinonia. That's the word for fellowship. He was thankful for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And so you and I have fellowship in the gospel. The second thing we find is that Paul, speaking to the Philippians again, gives us that great verse as he begins to introduce the pouring out of Christ into the world and into the flesh, he says if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. So we have participation in the gospel. We have participation in the Spirit. Paul then in chapter 3, Philippians, comes to this great statement of faith and desire that he had, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now watch this, and may share in his sufferings. The word share there is the word fellowship, koinonia. Paul's desire was to fellowship in Christ's sufferings, to share in Christ's sufferings, so much that he would go on to say, becoming like him in his death. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, excuse me, Paul again speaking to a church that was a, it was a true church, but there was some carnality about it, there were some things in it that was not um, what it should be. And notice that he uses this idea of begging earnestly for the favor of taking part. The word taking part there is fellowship. It's koinonia. Taking part in the relief of the saints. So we have fellowship in the gospel. We have fellowship in the spirit. We, 
Paul desired to have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, and now we see that he's encouraging and instructing the Corinthians to take part in helping relieve the saints of some of their burdens, some of their problems that they had. And then when you get to 1 John, which we just went through a series on 1 John last year, you'll be reminded that in verse 3 of chapter 1, that you too may have fellowship with us. Why? Because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying again, or excuse me, John is saying again, that the fellowship of the church is because of God, because of Christ, and not only do we have fellowship with them, we have fellowship with one another. In verse 7, he goes on to say that it's only when we walk in the light that we have fellowship with one another because it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us. Walking in the light that's when we know we have fellowship with one another because we're, we have the same desires, we have the same goals, and that is to live Christ-like and to pursue His holiness. So what does that mean to us? The question I would ask is this. Do you feel the sense of connection to, between, and for others in this church? See, when you truly understand fellowship, you participate, you don't just attend, and when you participate, there is a connection that is developed, there is a, there is a feeling of belonging that develops. Do you interact with people in this church outside of our regular meeting times? Do you wish the best for others in this church? Are you concerned with getting to know others in this church? See, if, if those things cannot be answered in a positive way, then you probably don't feel the sense of connection to, between, and for others that you need to have in this church. Then notice the fourth thing that these people gave themselves to, devoted themselves to. It was the breaking of bread. We're not sure exactly what this phrase, breaking of the bread, means. It could mean one of two things. It could mean the Lord's table, communion as we would know it today, which is often practiced on the first day of the week at the gathering of the church. It could be that. It could be a meal in which they're just sitting down and having a meal together. Uh, that seems to be the sense of what's happening here, especially in verse 46, when you see that they are going from house to house, sharing in the breaking of bread. So the, the sense here seems to be a general sense of a meal, of coming together and sitting down at the table together. Uh, however, you also need to know that sometimes it was the custom that at the end of a meal, that there would be a time of remembrance in which they would remember what Christ did for them. And so, whatever the situation here is, the, the point is 
that they were sitting down together, they, they were coming together, and they were breaking bread together. Do you know, if I can put this in the context of the natural family for just a moment, do you know that today there are more and more articles and studies that are showing that the best family situation is when a family sits down four or five times a week around the table? Do you know why? Because it's a time to connect. It's a time to talk. It's a time to really dig in to the issues that we're facing as a family. Can I remind you the same is true about the church? Don't ever take for granted those moments when we have fellowship luncheons because that gives you a moment to sit around the table sharing food in common with one another, eating together, and having conversations. That's an expression of our fellowship. And so they were breaking bread together. And so whatever the case is here, it's important for us to see that there was a personal interaction of every believer. They were participating in the meal. They were coming together for this purpose. And can I remind you this morning that there were some important moments in which Jesus taught important truths at the table. For instance, in John 13, you find that it was during supper, it was at the table, that when supper had been ended, Jesus got up, wrapped himself with a towel, filled a basin with water, and he began to teach his disciples about serving and about the need for daily cleansing from the pollution of the world. He taught them that around the table. It was an important truth for them. It was something important for them to know. Then we find that Jesus had an interaction with two men on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. He interacts with them. He talks with them. Eventually, they invite him to dinner. He goes to supper with them. He sits down with them at their table. And what we find is that as he sat at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. And then when you read this passage in Luke 24, what you find is all of a sudden they had a light bulb moment. This is him. This is him. It was around the table that Jesus opened their eyes and they recognized him. It was around the table, not a literal table, but I'm going to say it was a table because food was involved. It was around the table that Jesus comforted his disciples. Resurrection had happened. He had disappeared. They didn't know where he was. All of a sudden, he appears in the room where they are. They think they've seen a ghost. They're a little startled about it. He begins to talk to them. And while he's talking to them, he asks them, Do you have anything to eat? And he took the fish and he took the bread that they had for them and he ate it. Why? To comfort them. To comfort them about their concerns and about the anxiety that they were experiencing. Here's the point. Don't rob yourself of the blessing of breaking bread together with other followers of Jesus Christ. Don't rob yourself of that.
blessing. And then lastly, what we find is the importance of prayer. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And what we find here is that prayer is an important part of the Christian life. It's one of those what we call spiritual disciplines. To see what the Bible says about giving ourselves to prayer in Acts chapter 1, a chapter before where we're at today. They were gathered in the upper room, and notice what it says, devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer. That same word, devoting, that we see here in chapter 2. There was some time, energy, and effort being given to prayer. Then you find, as you move into Acts chapter 6, just a couple chapters after where we are, the apostles make this determination, the followers of Christ make this determination, we will devote ourselves to prayer. Actually, this is the apostles. There had been a problem that arose in the church. Some of the widows were complaining that they weren't being taken care of like others. And so the apostles, in a moment of wisdom, said, we need you to pick out seven men from among you. They are what we know as the first deacons. The deacons were concerned with serving the material needs of the people. And this is the commitment of the apostles. We'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice that word devote again. Why? Because they understood as apostles that what they were doing in prayer and in the ministry of the word was for the benefit of the church. Notice that Paul then tells us that we are to be constant in prayer. In Romans chapter 12, we're to be constant in prayer. He then again tells us in Colossians 4, speaking to the Colossian church, you're to continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is an important discipline of the spiritual life. And I would say to you that it's just important that we gather together as a church for prayer as it is for you to have a personal time of prayer in the church. So that brings me to this question. Why does the announcement of a music concert excite us more than the announcement of a church prayer meeting? Are we truly dependent upon God? Are we truly seeking God's direction for handling life's issues? Are we truly persistent and persevering in prayer? Four things that they devoted themselves to. The instruction of the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Are you giving the time, the energy, the effort 
that you should be giving to the local church in these four Thank you once again for downloading today's podcast of the Sunday Sermon. And once again, if you would just be so kind to rate and comment on this podcast, that will help us to become more discoverable in the podcast universe. And until next week, may God bless you. May you have a great week. Thank you.